listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so thrilled to welcome Benjamin Hadeen to read from his debut novel, Under the Spell. And after that, he'll be joined in conversation by Maza Mengiste. Before I introduce them, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing, and you can always shop online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Benjamin Hadeen is the author of In Search of the Movement, The Struggle for Civil Rights, Then and Now, and editor of the anthology Studio A, The Bob Dylan Reader. He has written for The New Yorker, Time, The Atlantic, The Oxford American, and The Chicago Tribune, among other publications. Also a Grammy-nominated producer of documentary films, he wrote the films Two Trains Running about the search for two forgotten blues singers, and the multiple award-winning 2021 documentary MLK FBI called Eye-Opening and Jaw-Dropping by Rolling Stone. He lives in Atlanta. Maza Mengiste is the author of The Shadow King, shortlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize and a recipient of the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature, as well as LA Times Books Prize finalist. It was named a best book of 2019 by New York Times, NPR, Time, Elle, and other publications. Beneath the Lion's Gaze, her debut, was selected by The Guardian as one of the 10 best contemporary African books. We are so excited to have you both. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Nat. Thank you, Nat. Ben, did you want to start off by reading us a little bit of Under the Spell? Sure, sure. And again, I'm so grateful to you and to Skylights for hosting this reading. Um, and especially to be in conversation with Mazda. It's a real honor and a privilege for me. Um, Mazda and I taught together what feels like long ago at NYU, um, you know, 2009, 2010. Yeah. <clears throat> taught writing and, and then, you know, and then I saw a review of The Shadow King and I was like, oh, okay, I think I know her and, and I ordered the book and um, I started reading this, this extraordinary novel with, um, you know, this epic canvas and um, just such beautifully and poetically concise prose and these structural felicities. I mean, it was like reading the English patient. Um, and so then, you know, we sort of reconnected in, in the past year. Um, really thankful to, to be here with you, Maza. Uh, no, it's, it's really my pleasure, uh, Ben. I can't wait to talk to you uh, a little bit more about our, um, our experiences in, in the writing program that we taught and uh, the way that it might have influenced your writing and uh, maybe mine, I think. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited for this. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Under the Spell is about a, a woman named Sandra whose husband dies suddenly in a car accident on New Year's Eve. Um, 
you know, she's, she's not all that old. They, they were in their mid thirties. They didn't have any kind of a will um, or inheritance set up. And so she has to sort through his financial records and his email to get the probate in order. When she does that, she finds a, a thread from another woman. Um, and she doesn't know what it is. The emails are suggestive, but not directly incriminating one way or the other. She can't make out if her husband was having an affair uh, or if he wasn't. Um, and when the woman writes back or writes an, an, an email, I should say, um, she wagers that perhaps she hasn't heard of, of her, hus her husband's death, Dale's death. And so she hits reply, um, impersonates, impersonating her dead husband. Um, and then a, a correspondence begins. Um, and that's the premise of the novel. And I'm gonna just read a short excerpt that's um, from the first days after his accident, um, <clears throat> when she's grieving and, and coming to terms with the fact that um, her marriage was not what she thought it was. Um, she's also alone in the house. She decides to sell her house. Um, She's not eating. She's suffering panic attacks. Um, you know, fairly, fairly common things in, during bereavement. She typed grief vertigo in a search engine and fell into a sinkhole of pages about mourning, reading heat scans of the brain and ads for anti-anxiety drugs, charts showing suicide rates for the bereaved, customs written during the Victorian age, do's and don'ts, no chilled foods, for instance, not for those suffering from irreparable loss. Last month on NPR, there was an interview with a doctor named Comstock, who had written a book called Under the Spell, Journeys into Grief. In it, he profiled survivors of every imaginable catastrophe, widows of mob hits, those who had fled a tsunami, parents who lost their child in a school shooting. And in the aftermath, he said anything was possible. It was beyond the power of medicine or pharmacology to predict. People might forget their names or sued for divorce, become hunger artists, fasting for a year, or wander the hallway of their high school and break down in front of their old locker. Rob Banks perform unaccountable acts of charity. One man whose wife died in a helicopter accident adopted the son of the pilot. Clairvoyance had been reported moments of glimpsing the unseen, like getting to the top of a mountain, Comstock said, and looking out over the clouds. Why no, Sandra thought. Put it like that and it almost sounds romantic, the state you would want to be in. It's not that way at all. And then skipping ahead a little bit to after she has discovered this other e these other emails, read some of them and is trying to grapple with their implications. Um, she learns or she remembers that she had saved a few voicemails from her husband. Sandra pressed seven to delete the message and walked into the kitchen and stood with her hands on the countertop. She was looking at her phone, the screenshot a photo of Dale's taken in the Pyrenees, the mountainside banked in mist. Her uncle who lived in Poe had bought a house there one that was said to have been used by the Gestapo during the war for interrogation. When the screen faded, she put her hand to it to keep it from going black and turned and opened the refrigerator. Inside the door was a bottle of Prosecco Dale had bought for New Year's, 
Only they learned one of Cheryl's friends was planning to make a similar drink, so they had left it at home. She twisted in the corkscrew and poured a glass and dialed her voicemail again. She had not listened to the messages yet. She thought if she had to, she could hold out for another week. Yet she also felt now was the time to do it. Do it and stop thinking about it. There were three of them saved. In the first, Dale read the model number on a set of tires and asked if she could find a lower price. In the second, nothing saved the click of the connection ending. We trekked away from the bar and through the snow to be able to say happy birthday from the top of the world. Then, and she could tell he was talking to Reed, holding the phone away. And she did too. He always hid presents in the storage closet in the garage. She pressed nine to save the message and drank the Prosecco and was about to call Reed and share it with him, but stopped. There was something else. What? It passed before her, indecipherable, and passed again. He had emailed Ryan Whitehurst about it. Sandra was almost positive. She went back to his account to check. This is an email that he had sent to the other woman. Shooting in Whistler, not the resort, but one of the mountains behind it following this band of snowboarders who I guess are also a cult. They're Bolivian. No doubt he was texting her in the bar. Impossible that he wouldn't, being with Reed, drinking, unless he was observing some silent code of conduct, saying, no, I will not do it on Sandra's birthday. Either way, she would have to delete the message. Hearing it, she wouldn't be able to think of anything except Ryan Whitehurst. She played it again, and this time when it was finished, she hit seven. It was all going to be like this, she saw. Nothing was safe now, nothing inviolate. She was in a state of freefall. She backed up, hoping to find a memory that was free of the contaminant of Ryan Whitehurst and settled on their first trip down the Pacific Coast Highway. The days when Dale had seemed like her double. By the time he died, each knew they were not, but there was no regret in the way things had turned out. Each believed they had given up certain similarities in order to enjoy something larger, a marriage built on a hidden and more fundamental compatibility. Yet who, after all, was Ryan Whitehurst but another version of the person Sandra had been in her 20s? A cinephile, unencumbered, the profile was unmistakable, even down to the same bag they each had, the clutch. Dale was still searching for his double. Perhaps this was the lesson of grief, the thing he saw after scaling the mountain and getting over the clouds, that people were the sum of their secrets. And when they died, there was no picking the lock, for they took it with them. The tintype, an ankle bracelet, the password and answers to the security questions, the sale of stock, and now the email, the horror deriving not from jealousy, but the threat of nullification. To find out the most intimate thing in your life, your marriage, was also the most alien. That all you thought was, was not. Thank you so much for that, Ben. That was um, really a wonderful reading. Um, listening to this and uh, knowing 
some of the work that you also do outside of writing, I was I was struck by this line, people are the sum of their secrets, um, which seems like a pivotal moment in this story. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about this. I'm, I'm going to do a bit of the EWP on you. Uh, and we can break that down for listeners in a minute. Um, but I find that echo, that line or that that thought echoing maybe in the latest documentary of yours that I saw the MLK FBI uh, people being the sum of their secrets. Uh, but I'm curious about uh, this story that seems to be it's about loss it's about memory it's about what we really know about human beings um and about ourselves in relation to them uh how did this how did this book uh come to you and i wonder if the questions that you're asking in this book are questions that you've been asking and other things that you do as well um other films or maybe other projects Sure. No, that, no that's a, um, a very acute connection, Laza. I mean, um, because you're right. In you know MLK FBI, it's it, um, you know that that's a documentary. I mean, that seems a long way or f pretty far removed from a, a book you know about a married couple set in Oregon in the present day. But you know, in a way, it's it's about secrets or it's about the uncovering of secrets, and that you know with the FBI following King so assiduously, he effectively gave up any notion of a, of a private life. Um, you know, and, and in this book, which I, you know, I wanted to write originally just as a short story, um, something like five to 6,000 words is, you know, 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago. Um, and it just, it kept mushrooming. And I began to see larger formal possibilities for it that made me want to write it um, as a novella. Um, and that, and you're right. I mean, it's one of the book's keynotes is that people are the sum of their secrets, you know, which is also just a thread in, in the best fictions, you know, certainly in, in Henry James or in Dickens. And it, in, in some ways it's the fictional process itself. It's, um, you know, it's the bearing of, of privacy and it's imaginative people, imaginary people, um, but it's still making the, the private act public. Um, you know, which is what happens to her late husband. And the, the, in writing this book that you imagined, you, uh, you imagined it as a, as a short story. And um, how, how, did, how did it begin to develop? At, at what point did you realize that you, had, that you were in the process of writing something longer? And I guess maybe my, my question is, at, uh, maybe you could speak about a particular moment in here when you said, oh, this is about to take me in a direction that I did not expect. Uh, I'm, I was captivated by, uh, you know, the thinking work that, that went into um, the idea of a woman who discovers, or in, in the fact that her husband, her husband dies in an accident and then impersonates him in a correspondence with someone else. Um, at what point did this story begin to branch into all these other things? I, I'm really interested and curious about that. Um, 
it was probably, I can't recall the exact moment, but I think it was almost certainly when I began to write the emails um, and the, the novel sort of settles into this um, epistolary back and forth for eight pages or so. Um, and I realized that when, when she's impersonating her dead husband, the, it, that opens up a lot of fertile, ironic terrain. Um, and that, you know, one, she continues to be her dead husband and the correspondence that she carries on with this other woman, it ends up becoming much more intimate and candid than the correspondence that her husband had. With her. And so, in the, so that's one irony that I wanted to plumb that um, in a way she ends up deepening this relationship that was actually sort of, you know, casual. Um, and then secondly, you know, she, I don't, I don't want to say that she becomes the villain of the story, but she's effectively catfishing somebody. And that complicates the reader's sympathy because up until, up until that point, of course, you know, it's very easy to feel sorry for her. She's a, a victim of terrible circumstances. Um, but then, you know, a hundred pages later, she's, she's something else. She's someone who in that excerpt I read, it has fallen under the spell of grief. Um, and is being taken in a direction that she never thought herself capable of and, and really hurting somebody in the process. I wondered, um, were there any discoveries you made along the way about, about grief maybe, or about friendship as you were creating these, these two women or pseudo dead person <laughs> and a woman in conversation with each other? Um, well, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, you know, this, nothing like this has ever happened to me. So it, this is, you know, fiction. I mean, the, it's just, I mean, it's, for the most part, um, it, it is a surmise, um, you know, this state of Sandra's that's rendered. Um, but I think that, you know, it, if there were any discoveries that were made, particularly in the way that she begins to take care of this four-year-old, um, that sort of just falls into her life and she effectively becomes her guardian for, for a handful of weeks um, is, is that, you know, grief does give you, you know, this second self or these other opportunities for, for transformation. Um, I don't want to say it's a blessing or that you're glad it occurred, but that that one is an offshoot, um, you know, of, of loss. I I'm gonna say something that's very cliche right now, which is that writing is a very solitary act and um, you know, you do it alone and yet you have this background with filmmaking and uh, you, that is, those are collaborative efforts. What was the process like to, to do one and the other? Were you doing both at the same time? You know, some filmmaking in addition to writing this book or did you have to set one aside? What was that well, like? No, I mean, I will say I was lucky in the in the filmmaking schedule that when it, when it came time to just totally focus on the spell and, and get it done and not do anything else, I was between films. Um, so, you know, the calendar worked out that way. Um, and, as, you know, you mentioned EWP that we both taught in the expository writing program. And, you know, film, I, I started making films around the time I left EWP and I've always considered it to be a is probably in some form a substitute for teaching and that it's the opposite of the writer's life in so many ways. It's social, it's collaborative, 
it, it thrives on deadlines, not that dissimilar from the academic calendar. And like, you know, I'm sure you've had this <clears throat> experience in your own writing. You can revise forever. I mean, you can just like, a book's sort of done. It's not arbitrary, but you know, <laughs> you could always, like I could rewrite under the spell three different ways right now. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, with filmmaking, like time and, and money will run out and you have to, you have to deliver it. It's, it's the, it is the opposite. You know, obviously there are creative similarities between the processes, but um, filmmaking, I think it, it appeals to me because um, even just being in my study alone four hours a day, I'm, you know, I'm pretty crazy by the end of those four hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I wanted to, you know, I wanted to ask you, it, it is solitary, but it is important for me to have somebody in mind. Like, I know at least one person will read this. I, you know, and otherwise it's, it's hard for me to move forward. Is, are you like that? That's interesting. Um, I, I know that when I was writing this book, I, I was really, if I had to think about who I was imagining at the other end, I have to say that, um, I was, I was really imagining myself at the other end of this process, not knowing anything that I had written. Maybe I was imagining a reader just like me. Mm. Maybe that wasn't me, but it's just like me. I wasn't thinking of any particular person, but um, I did, I felt that I had taken so many risks with this book that I wasn't sure what would happen. I was just trying to imagine Will I like it? Will I like it at the end of whatever this is? Um, I don't know what's going to happen, but is this chapter something that would lead me to, to read the next thing, mm -hmm. the next chapter? Yeah. So um, that's, you know, that's the way that I, I was thinking of it. I didn't have a reader, um, but I do think now that we're back on EWP, which is the expository writing program for listeners who are wondering what that code word is for. Um, and it's a program that uh, Ben and I taught in at NYU. It was first year writing for incoming freshmen. They either loved it or hated it or really hated it. <laughs> but it was. <laughs> um, and it was, I've always imagined it was a, it's, it's a way to teach students creative nonfiction. Um, and I, I think I have imagined a reader who, who was doing the kind of thinking that we did together in groups when we, we would have these big meetings or maybe a group of us sitting around after conferences at, uh, you know, at a bar yeah. talking about ideas. I imagine that reader. Yes. So not a passive reader, right. but someone really engaged and um, yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, but it's always interesting to me to see somebody who has also come out of this program, because mm -hmm. we were. Um, I feel like we were. We went into it not uh, not quite knowing what we would be teaching, and then we were taught to think the way that we were trying to teach our students to think, and we were we were shown, you know the ways of putting texts and ideas together that felt sometimes um, incompatible, incompatible, but then it worked. And I, I wondered if some of this thinking uh, that we were doing in this program or that we did as, as instructors um, also fed into your own creative process. Yes, no, I, I think um, 
you know, I mean, I, I want to say inevitably it did, but I certainly, certainly fortunately it did because, you know, that then with teaching, you know, for it to um, eventually inform and influence your own work. I mean, that's what you sort of hope will happen. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, um, it, it certainly shaped my view of ideal creative nonfiction, um, you know, the way that it, it should incorporate myriad sources and, um, you know, be a kind of salad. You know, that comes from EWP. Um, and, you know, my last book, In Search of the Movement, The Struggle for Civil Rights, Then and Now, um, that also came out of a lot of discussions that I would have with my students and, um, you know, viewing, you know, viewing the present um, and the past as commingling as one. And um, so, yeah, I mean, has it been that way for you? I, uh, not that you're still teaching, but not, but not there. I'm still teaching. Yeah. yeah, different, different, you know, I teach creative writing, but I'm, I find myself still uh, using some of the, some of the techniques that we, not techniques, but some of the idea work that we were, we were doing in the classroom or some of the texts, you know, some of the ways that I speak of texts now, I think for sure had to be influenced by uh, what we were doing in that program. Um, I, I mean, if I wanted to, if I wanted to read an EWP influence on Shadow King, I mean, I could. When, yeah. I, when I think of the structural devices and the way that you move back and forth, I mean, would that be accurate or, I mean? Maybe, yeah. I. Hard but, to say. Yeah, partly it's, it's hard to know what came first, the, you know, the chicken or the egg with this, but I definitely think it developed. This was a, a way of seeing, uh, you know, seemingly disparate things. Um, it definitely taught me how to work with images, which is something I'm curious about in your own work, um, how, to, how to integrate them into written work, but how, how to literally work with images, how to, how to look and, and conceive of them as ideas that are in a visual narrative. Um, and I wondered if, I'd love to hear you talk about this, uh, the work that you've done, uh, you know, the filmmaking work you've done. Uh, the latest documentary is the MLK FBI, I think, um, unless there's another one I'm not aware of, but I know you're working on other projects. Um, how did this work with film, how does it begin to inform the writing life that you have? And how did it begin to inform the, either the writing process or the work that you did in this book? Um, well, again, like you, it's, it, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg. It's, it's hard to know which came first, but it, it certainly helped, I think, with pacing. Um, and with, you know, showing everything a little bit up front and then, you know, cutting away. And then, so um, in how you think of organization, um, because in writing you're at liberty to do this, in film you almost have to do this, where you just start in the middle of things um, and then kind of back up. You can't be purely linear. Um, I mean, you can be, but it's, especially in documentary, it's hard to sustain a viewer's attention that way. And so you do have to kind of mash chronology and, and, and make it um, whirl around. And um, I would hope that that would, my writing would reflect that work. Yeah, and I, um, I'd like to get back now a little bit to the book and um, think about, 
I'm really interested in the inspirations that you had that led to this. Um, maybe not the particular plot itself, but what what was it about a, a domestic story? It, it feels like a very intimate story, a story of a marriage, a story of loss. Um, and I'm setting it next to the work that you've done that are that feels almost epic, Bob Dylan, um, you know, MLK, uh, taught, writing about or the blues, the civil rights movement, these epic moments in history. And now this book is um, th this, this really fascinating look at one or two, two women's lives. How did, how did that come about? What inspired you to maybe move move into a smaller space? Um, probably my reading, um, you know, and the, and the, the, the books that really inform this, um, you know, the stories of Alice Monroe in particular, um, who uses, you know, she uses letters quite a lot. Um, you know, I, I'm using letters counterpart email. Um, and so, and yeah, and I, I, um, I like, the idea that you could just, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why the book is short, I will say that, um, you know, it was, I would love to write it as a hundred thousand words. I could not for the life of me figure out a way to do that. And then when I was finishing it, it kept on getting shorter and shorter. I was like, where do I draw the line? I mean, maybe, you know, um, so yeah. I, I, I want to learn that trick yeah. then. I really want to do that because, um, I'm determined to make whatever I write next short, and I'm not sure I know how. There is a there is a talent to that. Yeah, but there, but don't but there is a talent for writing long too. I mean, Shadow King <laughs> Shadow King would never work. Well, I mean, I'm gonna say no, but you know, it's like as soon as you pull Shadow King under 300 pages, I mean, you're gonna lose a lot of what makes that such a, a, a memorable and captivating read, right? Was it always long? Was it always a big book for you? I mean, it was as, as hard as I tried to, yeah. to keep cutting and cutting and cutting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, um, there are times now where I, I think, uh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna start a short story and I can already tell by that first sentence, I'm creeping into something that's, that's going to be much, much longer. And I just said, ah, forget it. You know, I don't, I, I don't have the energy right now um to start, uh, <laughs> to start this so uh, i um i've been i'm fascinated by by books that are short uh there are uh you know a lot of a lot of writers i have been looking up uh, trying to see how they did it because there is a pacing to it but there's also a consideration about what can be eliminated and still the scenes that are next to each other create a through line, uh, you know, and I wonder um, if this is in part from your experience as a filmmaker, maybe with a producer who's just always cutting, you know, much to the chagrin of a director maybe, or um, have, is this something you think that your filmmaking has helped with just learning how to cut, how to edit? No, yeah, no doubt, no doubt it helps. I mean, at, like when, when you make a film, you can't hang on to anything, right? Any sort of bashfulness about cutting, you immediately have to just put away. And, um, and that probably does come over into writing. That just, um, you know, you cut it and you get on with your life. 
yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if is is there a scene in your book that um, that was maybe the most the most difficult to write, maybe because of the delicacy of it. Maybe there was another reason, but is there a moment in this book that really um, sticks out to you as something that you had to uh, you had to edit or or work through? And I and I'd love to hear more about that. If so. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say, Maza, that at the end of the book, the very last couple of pages, um, you know, Sandra does sell her house in Oregon, um, in part for cash considerations and in part because she's in this tailspin and needs to for forge a new life. Um, and she doesn't have really a, pl a coherent plan. And so she drives home to be with her parents. And I was always going to have her, you know, that was where the book was supposed to end, like, being at home, you know, in this sort of springtime morning. I mean, it was, you know, it was always going to be a quasi affirmative ending. Um, and that when she, this happened to me once on I-95 and it, it, it snowed and they closed the interstate and I was stuck. And, you know, so I've sort of wrote about that. She's crossing Montana, there's a blizzard and I-90 is closed for a couple of hours. And I realized I could end the book there, you know, which is a cutting move that you don't, she doesn't have to go all the way home. You don't have to do that. It can end right there in the, in the snowstorm. Um, and so sometimes cutting it, it, it's not even in the revising or in the highlighting of the sentence and pressing the delete key, but it's in the, the very, um, you know, interplay of the scenes or in the duration of the scenes, when you drop the curtain um, is, is such an, you know, an important question. Absolutely. It's interesting to think about how, uh, your filmmaking, I came into that moment, but the writer just kept moving forward, um, right. so to speak. That's that's really interesting. Um, I I'm curious about the you've done work in your other in your other life with with research, uh, the civil rights movement, um, looking through I think uh, historical documents and so on. And uh, this was something that feels like it was more familiar, more contemporary. Uh, but did, did, did any aspect of research, that research hat that you would wear in, in, in your work in film come into this book as well? Um, not really, no. I mean, I, I really wanted to write this, you know, from inside, just, um, uh, you know, from what I lived and what I read and, and shaped that. Um, certainly I had to research things, but it was always after the fact. It was to, it was to check certain, you know, like in what I read, I mean, no, no chilled foods, um, that comes from the year of magical thinking, right? Um, so it's like, so I did, I did borrow stuff and I did read about bereavement, of course, but, um, and, and it, you know, it trickled in. But um, mostly I was looking up things just to check myself. Um, you know. was, there, was there any uh, any any questions that that might have come up from writing two characters who were female, or was this just it it, it was again uh, a kind of writing from the inside on this? Like no, I, I mean I didn't. Yeah, I, I just I tried to I tried to do my best on that. <laughs> so I mean you know you know the Colson Whitehead line right is that it mean like and I you know he says. When, when he's writing women, he says, people only ask about if I don't do a good job. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I, I think that fundamentally you're talking about, 
persuasion, convincing somebody this is a credible look, um, you know, at a woman. I mean, I don't think women and men are all that different. So this is a different yeah. that's a whole other thing. But like, it's ultimately a question about um, talent. And, and, and can you pull it off and uh, are the words there and are they in the right order? And, um, you know, so I, I viewed it that way. Not that I was transcribing a consciousness that I was in touch with, but that it was, um, you know, a kind of aesthetic question that I, I, I really wanted to, to pull off. It's, it never was the, the main character never, even if you go back to 2010, 2011, when the idea first struck, he, he was never a man. I don't, I don't know why, but it was always just, yeah. the, the pronoun comes into your head, she, mm -hmm. and there it is. Exactly, exactly, that, that I understand. I'm wondering about um, books that have influenced you. Uh, maybe you mentioned, um, oh my gosh, the Didion book, that uh, Year of Magical Thinking, and, and you've, you've mentioned Alice Monroe. Were there other writers that were influencing you as you wrote this or as you were thinking about this? Um, the, certainly those, those were the big ones. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, the other, uh, just two, like Don DeLillo's The Body Artist, it, um, it's a very, it's a spare novel. It's shorter even than Under the Spell. Um, and it's this woman whose boyfriend kills himself and she's left alone in the house. And so, you know, a kind of similar premise. I, I think that that was foundational. You know, again, I read that book almost 20 years ago, but I do think it was foundational um, to the story. And I'm, I'm curious about the advice that you might give to uh, young writers who are, who are listening right now. Maybe there are filmmakers out there too who are listening to this. Um, what advice would you give them about starting out? Um, yeah, um, make sure you finish. <laughs> right, it's, e it's easy to start, it's harder to sustain, but, um, uh -huh. you know, so just remember that, like the, the real difficulty comes in saying, I'm gonna push through with the end. I don't know, what do, you, what do you think about that for advice? That's maybe. No, I think that's absolutely true. It's. I think I think people have the idea that you write just when you're inspired and you have to write when you don't feel like it or you have to sit down and do the work whatever that is yes. to get us to get to that finish point no the poet Randall Jarrell is the line attributed to him is that writing is just waiting around for the rain to fall <laughs> yeah so like to sort of you have to be at your desk for that to happen so, you know, to your point. And so. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and one more thing. We, I gotta ask, what, yeah. you, what uh, are you working on? Oh, I was gonna ask you the same thing. You dropped the um, and, Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm slowly wading into the next book. Um, very, very, very slowly. I'm just re doing a lot of reading right now and uh, trying to see what sticks, what, what inspires. Yeah. And hopefully it'll be short. Well, you just, yeah, we'll come back in five years and we're gonna, um, yeah. <laughs> do you write while you read then? Or? Yeah, I do. I tend to, but I do a lot of most, so, so much of my reading is nonfiction or um, especially now when I'm thinking about something, it tends to be, you know, historic, like historical documents. Yeah. Uh, things that, yeah. So I read a lot of that, but it's fascinating 
to me. Um, and, and then I'll see what, what comes from that, what, what sparks. Yeah. So, and what about you, Ben? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am working on a new novel, very different from Under the Spell. Um, it's historical and it's like, it's about this person who's um, a, a legend in folklore. So it's like this, um, you know, it's a story that you go both ways. History says one story, folklore says another. And so, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the best. That's the best kind of uh, yeah. story to write. I'm keeping my fingers crossed for that. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, same to you, Monica. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you both so much for being here. That was such a lovely conversation. We were so happy to facilitate it here at Skylight. Thank you again to Benjamin for sharing Under the Spell with us. And thank you to Maza for your generous conversation. You can order your very own copy of Under the Spell at www.skylightbooks.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.